Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for being reminded in so many different ways that in Christ, all of your promises are yes and amen. Thank you that we can trust you and be in awe of you, not only during this hour, uh, but as we go and as we live and as we enjoy things and as we suffer, knowing that eternal life is ours in Christ because of what he's accomplished. May we live in that light. May it cause us to be eager to learn more about him even now. In Jesus' name, amen. A common stereotype for faith or describing faith is that faith is a blind leap into the dark. It's pretty common. Others have described faith as faith is believing what you know ain't so. Mark Twain. Sam Harris defined faith as the license religious people give themselves to keep believing when reasons fail. Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous atheist in my generation, in this era, defines faith this way. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. If the Apostle John were responding, who wrote the Gospel according to John, which we're studying, he would respond and say, Faith is the great leap into the light. Because Jesus is the light, and it's not blind, you leap into the light with both eyes open, wide open, okay? And I say that because faith, which means trust, which means believe, place your confidence in, in the biblical sense, is not contrary to reason. In fact, faith in Christ is reasonable. In fact, it's utterly reasonable because Jesus came and he not only said things, he not only, not only made great claims, he backed up his great claims with his actions by raising the dead, by healing those who couldn't be healed, by doing all of these amazing things and then culminating at the high point, going to the cross and then being raised from the dead in time and space, real history. And he did that on behalf of everyone who would believe in him so that we would have resurrection life. So both eyes open, yes, leaping into the light, not into the darkness with your eyes closed. What we're going to see this morning, and, and please don't get me wrong, faith can be a, a real stupid thing, Okay? If it's contrary to the evidences, if it's contrary to reason, if it's faith in something that's not faith-worthy, then that would be dumb. It would be ridiculous. It would be bad. But as we're studying the gospel of Jesus according to John, we're seeing Jesus, the historical figure, the real one who is trustworthy. Okay? This morning what we're going to see at the end of the gospel according to John is what I want to call the unreasonableness of unbelief. Okay? So here Jesus has been doing all of these amazing things certifiably, objectively, historically, and to not believe in him, to not trust in the trustworthy one is 
unreasonable. And that's what's happening. So if you want to look with me at the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to John, it's not the Gospel of John. John is not the good one who has good news. It's the Gospel of Jesus according to John. And we're going to see unbelief is unreasonable. Is what we'll see in our text. A couple of things. We don't need an outline this morning. Um, it would probably get in the way of things. Um, what we're going to do is look at the, at the closing of John chapter 10. But just a couple of things to keep in mind. It, we're, we're coming right off of that, that I guess it's called the, the Good Shepherd Discourse, right? Jesus' amazing, extraordinary declarations about him being the good shepherd, laying his life down for the sheep. He's already talked about being raised again. And so he, he's the good one, the ultimate one, the ultimate one to care for our souls. He's that good shepherd. Keep that in mind as we read our passage because they don't like it because he and the Father are one. They're together. They're doing this for those who would believe. And that's where the opposition is going to come from, the unbelief. Keep that in mind. And, and I can't help myself but to encourage you to keep chapter 11 in mind. So let's quick read chapter 11. No, I'm just kidding. Keep chapter 11 in mind because in chapter 11, we have Jesus raising the dead. Okay? Jesus giving us, if you will, a preview, raising a physical, physically raising a man from the dead, giving us a preview of what will be true of everyone who believes in him in the end, that he has the power to do that. Okay? So he's not just making grand claims. He's been doing grand things, and remember, chapter divisions are there for us, so I could say chapter 11, and you can know what I'm talking about. It's right on the heels of this unbelief that he does, I wanted to say the unbelievable, but I can't say that. He substantiates, he authenticates. In an extraordinary, significant way he does. So let's just keep that in the back of our mind that that's where this is headed. He's no mere empty talker. He's one who is believable. So we're going to look at 31 to 42. And they're poised to execute Jesus, who's the good shepherd, who's going to work with the Father. And it says in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They're going to execute him. And notice it says again, because in chapter 5, verse 18, they were going to stone him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were right. Chapter 8, verse 58 and 59, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he was saying. They're picking up stones to stone him because he's claiming to be more than a mere human being. He's claiming to be God. And so here they're going to execute him. They want to do it yet again. This is the third time recorded in the gospel according to John. He claims to be the son of God. He claims to be the one who is with God, united with God, the unique one, the eternal one. And in their minds, that is high religion religious crime. And if he's lying, it is high religious crime. In a sense, their tendency is right. If he is only a mere human being and he's making these claims, that's high religious crime. Maybe something to keep in mind before we go to the next verse. Uh, it is something we learned, oh, chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Um, it's the Feast of Dedication. 
it might help us to remember it's the Feast of Dedication. Because at the Feast of Dedication, which we know as Hanukkah, it's the celebration of something that had happened not in the Old Testament. It had happened, I think I want it off the top of my head, 160 B.C. I mean, it was recent history when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian pagan ruler came and conquered and took over and he defiled the Jewish temple and he did so by setting up sacrifices in the Jewish temple and he put a pagan altar in there so he made it spiritually unclean and dirty and he conquered the Jewish people and they hated him and they hated what he did and he, they hated the oppression and he, what he did was a terrible thing but then they rose up and they built a military and they overthrew and they ran those Syrians out of town. And they were proud about their conquest. They were victorious, right? So this is a time when you're celebrating that, they're, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting holiday. Remember our history. Remember when someone tries to, to defile our religion, we are strong and we stand up and we conquer and we silence them. Okay, so religious zeal kind of holiday, religious fervor, nationalistic religious zeal and fervor, fervor together. And here is this Jesus who's saying outlandish things that according to their mindset and how they're hearing him, he is an opponent. He says things like, I am the temple. He says things like, I'm the son of God, making himself equal with God. So perhaps, I'm not for sure, but commentators bring it up, and I think it maybe helps us to remember, oh yeah, Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, that's this, this nationalistic zeal kind of we're victors over those who oppose us nationally and religiously. So maybe that's even all the more. And they're under Roman oppression right now, and they're hating every second of it. It's holiday time. Maybe that helps us to understand kind of the intensity of what's going on. Now, let's look at verse 32. The accused says, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. I pause there because I've shown you many good works, like I've given people sight who've never been able to see before, people who haven't been able to walk before, there's no hope for them, and I have helped them. These are good works, undeniably so. I've done that. I've shown you many good works, but then notice too, from the Father, I'm not here on my own, I'm here sent, and I'm doing this, this is from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I don't know if he said it just like that, but it's this inquiry, quite the inquiry. So you're going to stone me for being bad, wicked, evil, blasphemous. So could you just let me know which good work you're going to stone me for? The good work I was sent to do by my father? It's a good question, right? This is, this is good engagement, You're going to treat me as if I'm bad for doing good. How does that work? That's what's happening here. 
Makes me wonder too, we just come off of the good shepherd, the good shepherd, the good shepherd. Uh, I've been doing all these good works from the Father. Which of these good works are you going to stone me for? Okay. Pretty ironic. It's bad to condemn the good. Then the response, look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Blasphemy is a, it, it means, it means lie. But it's a religious lie. You say things that are not true about God. You can't do that. But for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Maybe we should look at some of the details of that. At least here they're not denying that he's done good things. It's pretty hard to deny that he's done good things. Blasphemous. It's, it's good to see here too that they do see he's a man. I, that's helpful. Not really in this context, but throughout the ages a big conflict when it comes to authentic Christianity is people who deny the humanity of Jesus. You being a man. He's a real man. They, they got that right. So good works. He's a man. They got that right. But that's about where it ends, right? Make yourself God. So they're correct that Jesus is a man. They're correct in understanding... Oh, how about they're correct in understanding that Jesus claimed to be God. This is good. So there's another thing that's correct. He's been saying things like in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Let me ask you though, did Jesus make himself to be God? No. Chapter 1 establishes that and throughout. You can't, and by the way, you can't make yourself to be God. By definition of who God is. Maybe, maybe this is just cutesy word terminology though. But let's do it this way for effect. But he did make himself to be man. Right? 114. He took on flesh. He's the eternal God, the eternal Son. He didn't make himself to be God, but he did make himself to be man. They've got it exactly wrong. And maybe in one sense, if you've got it exactly wrong, you pick up stones to stone somebody. Because it would be blasphemous. But if it is the way... It's been laid out in the gospel account. It's not blasphemous. He didn't make himself to be God. He made himself to be man. That's not blasphemous. So at this point in time, the, the, these, these guys are losing their minds. Okay? Right? They're, they're so angry they can't see straight. They're, they're losing their minds even theologically. Okay? Based upon what Jesus is going to say, they, they, they can't even think straight. They're, they're not even going to be good Jewish apologists. This happens sometimes in, in theological debates. You get yourself so deep into it, and now all of a sudden you're saying things you, you, you don't even realize you're saying. You ought not be saying. And that's going to happen with these guys. They're going to say things. They're thinking. They're so far down the rabbit hole of wrong thinking that they're saying things that are contrary to their own scriptures. Maybe there's a lesson there to be learned for us. 
Be careful about the fights you get into. I know that that's what's happening because Jesus is going to quote their Bible to them and, and make his argument based upon what their scripture says. But at this point in time, they're saying, you say you're the son of God. That's not biblical. We're biblical. For anyone to make that claim, outlandish, can't happen. We'll stone you for it. Can't see straight. Here's Jesus' response, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? He's going to quote a psalm, so he doesn't mean the Pentateuch, first five books, but sometimes the Bible refers to the first five books. Sometimes it's referring to the whole thing, like in Psalm 119. Isn't it written in your law? He's going to quote the psalm. Isn't it written in your... You're so biblical. Isn't there... Isn't there something written in your law, in, in your Bible? 34, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods, lowercase g, appropriately. Hmm. Could be confusing at first, but I don't think it will be as we keep moving through it. Isn't there at least precedent for saying things like son of God? God in some sense? Is it, is it, is it, you know, he's, here's the debate. And he's like, um, could you look up a passage for me in your Bible? Could you just turn to the Psalter, book of Psalms? It's kind of interesting how, how Jesus is creating this kind of nuanced kind of argument. They've forgotten about even these kinds of things. So, okay, Psalm 82 is, is where that's found. In Psalm 82, verse 6, it says, I said... You are gods. Lowercase g, appropriately. That's what God says to Israel. I said you are gods. Sons, it says, if you keep reading. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Huh. Well, I'll be. It goes on to say, and I'm going to save this for later in a sense, nevertheless, God says to Israel, the ones he calls sons of the Most High, gods, lowercase g, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So, I'm not going to lie, this is complicated to try to think through all this and why Jesus is saying what he's saying, but I think when you read the whole thing, it helps. I think Jesus is... is is making a point. In principle, you can't say, he's saying to the Jews, no one ever should say that they're a son of God. Because after all, God is the most high. And that would make an inappropriate relationship. And he's like, well, uh, turn to the Psalms. God the Almighty called you, you, you people, the Jews, your ancestors, gods, probably in, in this context, based on what Jesus is going to say in John 10, because he gave them the scripture. They, they had an extraordinary relationship with God. Unlike other people, they were in this unique position, this special kind of position. 
Even to the point where they could rule in a unique way. Their kings could. Like, lowercase g, gods. And, and, and in that sense, they're sons. Again, lowercase s. But they're, they're sons. He says, all of you. And so Jesus is reminding him. This isn't Jesus' only argument, by the way. And let's keep it in context. But here, just at least to kind of call these guys back to hopefully not not being able to see being able to see straight again he's like hey wait a second your bible says that the israelites are sons sons of the most high gods so your your rationale you you guys are you you're you're not thinking right i think that the the fancy word that people would use is principially Okay? It could be true to call yourself son. It's not a violation. It's true in Israel's past. Now, I, I can't help myself. I don't know if this is intentional or not. But it is interesting to observe, and I'm not the only one to do this, to say, isn't it interesting where he says that in Psalm 82... And in the same expression, he says, Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. There's something very unique and special about you Israelites. But unlike me, uppercase G, God, you'll die. I find it interesting, remarkable, noteworthy in light of chapter 8 of John, in light of other texts. That's not true of Jesus. It's true of Israel because of their sin. Unique position, but not the end all because they're going to sin and die. Jesus, unique position, But that latter part is not true of him because he only does what is pleasing to the Father and therefore he won't die, is what chapter 8 said. Is that trajectory meant to be there or are we meant to see that? I don't know for sure. I know it's true. Is it intentional? I don't know. But Jesus is not like unfaithful Israel. He is going to be the faithful son. That's been clear since chapter 1. He's not just a son, he's the son, the ultimate one. Israel had gotten to the place where they kind of thought they were the end all, the end game. And then they meet the deliverer, Messiah, ultimate son. And they don't have a category for it. And they've lost their minds. Let me ask you this question. Maybe just to help you, even as you read your Bible, and how to read your Bible. And not like that. Who in the Bible is called by God, my firstborn son? It's a trick question. I tricked my wife with it yesterday. And say, well, Jesus is my firstborn son. Let me revise the question. Who is the first one to be called my firstborn son in the Bible? 
Or maybe better yet, who in Exodus chapter 4 is called my firstborn son? To be Mark Twain-esque, it ain't Jesus. (laughs) It's Israel. Exodus 4.22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. They're my special son, my special ones, my special people. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's what a son does. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, you're right. Molly was right. Hebrews 1, 5, and 6 talk about Jesus as the ultimate son. He is the firstborn, capital S, son. But why are we just doing that exercise and I realize we kind of slowed things down? Because what happens when you start thinking like they thought, that they were the ultimate, that they were the end, that they were the... In a sense, they're thinking they're the son. It's, it's, it's cataclysmic. It's disastrous. Yeah, they were the son, the unfaithful son. The special son, but the unfaithful son. And there had to be a greater son. Just like there had to be a greater David. Just like there had to be the ultimate one, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate Messiah. It's him. It's him. Don't read your Bible without thinking like that. That's why I like to say, don't ultimately be chasing shadows. If Jesus isn't the ultimate end game in the end as the son, we've lost our way. They'd lost their way. They had even forgotten that anyone in the Bible could be called son. I imagine some of us have forgotten that anyone before had been called son. It's all on purpose. It's all part of the greater plan. It's moving toward ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who's going to be the end game, who's going to be the ultimate object of worship. It's no wonder he refers to himself as the temple. It's all moving toward him. Okay, maybe too much about that, but perhaps not. Verse 35 says, If he called them gods, God called the Israelites gods, as he calls them sons, to whom the word of God came. That's why we would say that's probably why he calls them that. They're privileged, they're unique, they're not like the other nations. And scripture cannot be broken. Jesus is as committed to the Bible as they are. Uh, Dare we might even suggest more committed because he knows what it actually says. 36 says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? Set apart, uniquely made holy. He's talking about himself and sent with authority. It's that apostle word. And sent into the world. You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? You guys are so off. You're so wrong. Now it's true. He's not claiming to be the same kind of son as Israel claimed to be. He's claiming to be something more, no doubt. But again, in principle, he's making this argument saying, you guys don't have good logic here. By the way, that word, in case you you missed it, whom the father consecrated, it's the the word holy. The, The father set apart, made holy, unique for this unique kind of privilege. 
that might be a good time to come back to Feast of Dedication in your mind. Celebrating the re-consecration of the temple. Antiochus Epiphanes, his altar is out. It was corrupting. It was bad. And we've re-consecrated it. Now it's holy again. And here Jesus is the one that the Father consecrated. This is, this is temple terminology. And, and he says, I'm that one. And I've been sent, not with my own authority, but with the authority of God. As one commentator said, it probably echoes the Feast of Dedication, which commemorates the sanctification of the temple after it had been desecrated. Fascinating. Maybe I want to read one more comment from a commentary just to kind of help settle things a little bit, at least in my mind, for my own conscience sake. Jesus is not using this argument to prove that he is God or the Son of God in the full-blooded sense propounded in this gospel. In other words, this isn't his only argument. He's just making an argument to try to get everybody back to 2020 vision. He's been having all kinds of other things he's done. He's been, made other kinds of arguments. But he is using this one here. Commentator says, rather, he recognizes that the animus, the fury of his opponents has not been thought through. I think that's helpful. In the heat of their opposition to what they hear Jesus to be saying, they are partly right. He does make himself equal with God, partly wrong. This fact does not establish a competing God and profoundly mistaken they have not grasped the drift of their own scriptures to see how he fulfills them, nor have they known God well enough to perceive that the revelation he is and brings is in continuity with the capstone of the revelation of God already provided. If that doesn't help you, sorry. Made me feel better by reading it. I'm almost tempted to say Jesus makes better arguments elsewhere, but that would not be a good thing to say. He makes different kinds of arguments elsewhere. But here, it's to try to expose some really bad thinking. The kind of thinking that happens when you get in a debate and you no longer see straight and you're denying things you didn't even know you were going to deny. which goes to the point of it's irrational. They become more and more irrational by not believing in Jesus. Now they're believing in things that are so far removed from their Jewish scriptures, it's not even funny. Okay, 37. Let's keep this going and get things wrapped up. 37 says, if I am not doing the works of my father, uh, he doesn't just make claims. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, I wouldn't take that out of context and say, well, you don't have to believe in me just in the works. That's not meant to be taken nakedly. But he's saying, look, look what I'm doing. How do you explain these things? 
And let that lead somewhere to supporting me and my claims. This is not the blind leap of faith. This is both eyes open. Look, look at this. 39 says, Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. I couldn't help but write verse 18 in my margin. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Right? Jesus has already made that clear. Nobody's going to kill me. Nobody's going to murder me. I'll lay my life down. True or false, Jesus was murdered? Trick question, right? He was murdered. At the hands of sinful men, it says in the book of Acts, he was killed. But know who's ultimately in charge and has the authority we've already seen. It's him. So until his time comes, he can't be killed. And we see that here. John 10, 18 is helpful. Okay, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan. So he's been, he's been in and around Jerusalem. But now he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. They're amazed. It really is true. Everything that John was saying about you is true. It's confirmed. And they're coming to him and they're coming to him. And then notice verse 42. And many believed in him there. Which I think is important because of earlier on when Jesus talks about those who believe, they won't follow a fake shepherd. They'll only follow the real one. His sheep hear his voice. Not everybody's going to respond positively because if they're not part of the sheep, they don't respond. That was what he was talking about before. But it wasn't that no one would respond. The ones the Father had given him would respond. We're going to learn about that in chapter 17. And look... They're coming. They're believing. And so I don't like to read that last verse we read, verse 42, without the earlier stuff and seeing, ah, there it is. And earlier when we were talking about the sheep and who responds and who doesn't respond, I was sure to read that verse to you. Because Jesus didn't just come making a bunch of claims and no one believed. Because if that were true, he would be fraudulent because he himself said that those given to him by the Father would believe. And now they're doing it. But they're not the ones we expected. You would think it would be the religious leaders. The Bible experts, you know. Wink, wink. We just, we just saw how the Bible experts got taken to the shed. For a little lesson. Their expertise in Bibles just getting worse and worse because of the blurriness created by unbelief. Don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. Right? This is the unreasonableness. Maybe the, the progressive unreasonableness of unbelief. It just gets worse. Maybe we should end with, with this. We all know by now, if we're reading this, and we're, if we're Christians... We know who the good guys are and we know who the bad guys are. And I like being good because it's good to be good. Good, right? 
It's like, yeah, those stupid, idiotic religious leaders, they lost sight of the Bible that they memorized. What a bunch of idiots. It's good to be good. It's bad to be bad. Let's all leave now and feel good about ourselves because we're good. But let's not do that. Let's remember maybe the gospel according to John holistically. Let's remember maybe this morning John chapter 3. That apart from the Holy Spirit's work, apart from regeneration, we're all the bad guys. And no one's believing. Not even anyone in this room. We would be finding irrationality rational. Isn't that amazing? And so what we want to do is see it in light of God's amazing, sovereign grace and remember that it's all grace. If you're understanding anything today that's true about Jesus, it's all grace. It's all because of the work of the Spirit. And that leaves us leaving today not feeling great and congratulating one another. That leaves us leaving today praising God, saying thank you, God, for your work. And it also makes us better witnesses to other people. You know, all those bad people out there who don't understand Jesus. You know, Richard Dawkins. Apart from sovereign grace of John chapter 3, you're Richard Dawkins. Okay? So we praise God and we share the good news of salvation in Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the good news of salvation in Christ. Thank you that there's something better than good news that there's the good one. And Lord, may the gospel not even be our end game. May, may the author of it be our ultimate object of faith. May we be resting in him. Thank you that we receive eternal life in him because of his life, his death, his resurrection, because of what he's accomplished. We have hope and we don't have our rebellion held against us. May we leave today with gratitude, May we leave today with a burden. May we leave today knowing that you have sheep, sheep who still need to hear the gospel and believe in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.